1: I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Welcome to a whole new season, friends, and oh my, what a ride we're going to go on in the next two months. Truman Capote and his coterie, the ones you know about and maybe a few yet to be connected in our investigation. What is a coterie? It's a noun defined as a small group of people with shared interests or tastes, especially one that is exclusive of other people. Truman Capote collects quite a coterie all his life, male and female, famous and infamous, friends and enemies too. It's a ride this season with the boy wonder turned burnout wonder, Truman Capote, which will take a few different threads. There's a lot of ground to cover. Today, we're going to set the stage. Before we begin this introduction into unpacking Capote's Coterie, I do have some tremendous thanks to give. A few names in our spyglass here. Thank you, thank you so much, Kathleen R. and Annie P. Can't tell you how grateful I am for your support over at patreon.com slash done and done. Very much appreciated. Thanks to both of you. Linda and Nick loved your emails. Thank you so, so much. Always so grateful for each of y'all, for your support on Patreon, for coming back week after week, and we are here at episode 99. Can you believe it? Let's get into this season. We are talking about Truman Capote through the next few weeks, and not only the boy Wonder Truman, Wonderkind writer, and certainly his writing will play a part, but you may be asking, hey Alicia, Truman hangs out with a lot of ladies. What about the swans? Where are they in this story? Oh, we're going to meet them. All of Truman Capote's high society ladies Babe Paley, CZ Guest, Slim Keith, Morella Agnelli, Gloria Guinness, and Princess Lee Radzwell. These beautiful ladies in Truman's coterie are collected through his journey, but There are so many other ladies in his life before these six we remember. And men too. Truman Capote collects quite a group of assorted characters, charmers, schemers, and big personalities with Truman Capote always at that essential center. It's time to set the stage for this season in which we explore Truman Capote and his life through his writing, the places he goes, and the people who will intersect through it, including our man Nick. Let's investigate. Truman mm-hmm. Capote, friends, he is a big deal to literature and scandal and... Gossip and Society Women, and our man Nick. Truman Capote and Dominic Dunn are contemporaries. Truman Capote, born September 30th, 1924. Dominic Dunn rears himself into the world October 29th, 1925, about 13 months later. These two men, complicated in so many ways, do skirt around each other for years. Truman Capote will become a huge influence on Dominic Dunn in his third act, that one taking place in the late 1970s, early 1980s. It is Truman Capote who Dominic Dunn models his first narrator after, Basil Plant. The narrator of the two Mrs. Grenvilles, that nomenclature Basil Plant, is a nod to Truman Capote's character, of Dill in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Remember the Two Mrs. Grinvilles, Dominic Dunn's Clay novel about the infamous Woodward's Billy and Anne? We've covered that story many moons ago on Dun & Dunn, but you know it's going to come up and back around again. I do believe that Dominic Dunn learns much from Truman Capote. Dominic will use Truman as inspiration for his first novel's narrator, Dominic Dunn, I think, will use Truman Capote as a touchstone in his life many, many times for how it's done and for how it might be better. Truman Capote is going to have a hard end. He sells out his friends and, well, gives in to many excesses. This could have been Dominic Dunn's path as well, Again, these two have much in common. People like to tell them their secrets. But where does the fine line come in between gossip and cruelty? I do have a glorious piece of writing here from our man Nick, taken from a Vanity Fair piece published in December 2005. This excerpt is from an article entitled Surviving the Darkness. I think this provides a bit of insight into Truman Capote, Dominic Dunn writes. I always love going back to Los Angeles because it was my home for 24 years and I have many friends there. Robert Blake is more on my mind than ever since I went to a screening of the film Capote, which deals with the four years Truman Capote spent writing in Cold Blood. He called the book the first nonfiction novel, and two years after its publication in 1965, it became a film starring Robert Blake as one of the killers in the story. Every time I have seen Blake at his trials, he has talked about Capote, and I would love to talk to him again about this movie, which was directed by Bennett Miller, from a script by Dan Futterman, Based on the distinguished biography by Gerald Clark. I haven't enjoyed a movie so much in a long time. The astonishing Philip Seymour Hoffman has reached his zenith playing the tiny, effeminate Capote. I knew Truman. He was never a great friend, but I had several intense experiences with him. He was a fascinating, highly manipulative person incredibly talented, but apt to say anything, who could tell lies and utterly captivate you at the same time. He befriended the Kansas killers who had been given the death sentence for the murders of four members of the Herbert Clutter family, and he made them famous as soon as the excerpts of his book were published in the New Yorker magazine. He also made them feel that they could rely on him to help them win an appeal. At the same time, however, he knew that he could not finish the book that would make him the most celebrated writer in America until he had witnessed their executions, which kept being delayed. Here's a very superficial story about Truman, but a revealing one, I think. In 1964, my wife and I celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary with a black-and-white ball at our house in Beverly Hills, and there was much advanced talk about the party. The fire department was adamant about the number of people we could invite, so we had to let all the guests know that they couldn't bring any friends or house guests with them. Truman was staying with the producer David Selznick and his movie star wife Jennifer Jones, so naturally we invited him. Then he called and asked if he could bring Alvin Dewey, the Kansas detective who had broken the case and arrested the killers, and his wife. I told Truman that because of the fire laws, we couldn't let anyone bring extra guests, but he wouldn't let it go. It was clear that he wasn't going to hang up until he had gotten the Deweys into the party, so eventually I relented. They were great, by the way, and Truman got the idea for his famous black and white ball in New York two years later from our party, but he didn't invite us. Fortunately, there was another side to Truman. At the time in my life when I stayed for six months in a one-room cabin in Oregon without a telephone or a television set, trying to pick up the pieces of my wrecked life. Truman wrote me the most wonderful letter. He said he was filled with admiration, that I had dropped out of Hollywood and was dealing with my demons. He ended by saying, but remember this, that is not where you belong, and when you get out of it what you went there to get, you have to come back to your own life. I never forgot that. A year or so later, After I did return to my own life, I went to Truman's memorial service at a theater on Broadway. It occurred to me sitting there that if Truman had gone to a cabin in the mountains of Oregon and dealt with his demons, he wouldn't be dead at the age of 60. It is a fascinating view that we will explore this season, looking at Dominic done through time against Truman Capote's life. They are contemporaries, and Dominic Dunn does take something from that heartfelt letter from Truman. Dominic Dunn's third act and him coming into his own is also the same period of time of Truman's self destruction. For our Patreon friends, You're Not Done Yet this week is a little bit about this story long before that letter arrived at Dunn's Cabin in the Woods. We'll be connecting a few interesting spiderwebs through Hollywood and Key West and Dominic Dunn and Truman Capote's interaction in the mid-1970s. In another slice of our coming season of Capote's Coterie, we are going to talk about a lot of other writers talking about Truman Capote, their recollections, their memories, in all the time periods of Truman's life and his career and his controversies. Truman Capote has so many writers in his coterie, For Good or Ill. Again, friends, enemies, frenemies. We will make our way in this season to many luminaries in literature. Gore Vidal, George Plimpton, to name a few. But this piece of writing from a pretty complicated character himself, Norman Mailer, was truly stand out to me to use for this setting the stage episode. Norman Mailer in this passage would be recollecting memories from after the year 1955, but no later than about 1960. That slice of time which has Truman sort of recreating himself yet again. Truman Capote will have many iterations of himself through his lifetime, but there is a core belief in Truman through every one of those personas he adopts through the decades. Norman Mailer, a pretty astute observer, recalls Truman Capote from this late 1950s time frame. Truman Capote was an extraordinary person. Extraordinary. Not extraordinary in the depth of his intelligence, but extraordinary in his daring. I once made a comment that he was one of the bravest men in New York, and you've no idea what it meant to walk around the way he did when he was young. I remember he was living in Brooklyn, and there was a set designer, I think it was Oliver Smith, who had a house about two blocks from where I lived in Brooklyn Heights. Truman lived in the basement there, so we'd run into each other on the street once in a while. One time when we did, we started walking, and I said, let's have a drink, and we went into the nearest bar. It happened to be an old Irishman's bar. It was 100 yards long, or so it seemed, and they all had one foot up on the rail, these tough working-class Irishmen, and probably some Scots, all drinking there. And we walk in, and there's Truman with the blonde hair that he still wore in bangs, and he had his little gabardine raincoat. He didn't have his arms in his sleeves. He had it tucked around his shoulders like a cape. And he walked in, and I walked in behind him and suddenly realized, oh my God. And we went to the back of the place, and sat down and talked for a while. Nobody bothered us, but, you know, it was one of those things where you just didn't relax for a moment. I figured there could well be trouble before we got out of there. It occurred to me then that Truman lived with that every minute of every day of his life. He insisted on being himself, and he was ready to take on what might happen.
0: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic shoes at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Truman Capote is a most impressive character in a lot of ways. But who was Truman Capote impressed by? In his coterie, there are a number of women. Certainly the famous ones, all of his swans, but maybe some just as famous but not necessarily attached to Truman Capote on first glance. Maybe some less famous that will be pivotal in his journey as a writer and in his human journey as well. Truman Capote has been collecting women in his coterie since the day he was born. Truman Capote becomes perhaps unknowingly the Anthropologist of a Certain Kind of Woman, which I think we will uncover in this season. There is an incredible essay published in the October issue of 1959. This is in Harper's Bazaar by Truman Capote. This piece is called A Gathering of Swans, which to me really benchmarks a place into the story in which we are headed. Truman Capote by 1959 has met more than half of his official capital S swans by this year, but by now Truman Capote does have a dozen women plus playing in that flock in one way or another. This piece of writing, I believe, provides an incredible lens on Truman Capote's view regarding it all. It is quite an illuminating snapshot in time. Again, from 1959 in Harper's Bazaar, Truman Capote's A Gathering of Swans. From the journal of a Mr. Patrick Conway, aged 17, during the course of a visit to Bruges in the year 1800, sat on the stone wall and observed a gathering of swans, an aloof armada, Coast around the curves of the canal and merge with the twilight, their feathers floating away over the water like the trailing hems of snowy ball gowns. I was reminded of beautiful women. I thought of Mademoiselle de V and experienced a cold, exquisite spasm, a chill as though I had heard a poem spoken. Fine music rendered. A beautiful woman, beautifully elegant, impresses us as art does. Changes the weather of our spirit. And that? Is that a frivolous matter? I think not. With the two swans adrift on these pages, appears a signet. A fledgling a promise, who may one day lead the flock. However, as is generally conceded, a beautiful girl of twelve or twenty, while she may merit attention, does not deserve admiration. Reserve that, Laurel, for decades hence, when, if she has kept buoyant the weight of her gifts, been faithful to the vows a swan must, she will have earned an audience all kneeling. For her achievement represents discipline, has required the patience of a hippopotamus, the objectivity of a physician combined with the involvement of an artist, one whose sole creation is her perishable self. Moreover, the area of accomplishment must extend much beyond the external. Of first importance is voice, its timbre, how and what it pronounces. If stupid, a swan must seek to conceal it. Not necessarily from men, a dash of dumbness seldom diminishes masculine respect, though it rarely, regardless of myth, enhances it. Rather, from clever women to those witch-eyed brilliance who are simultaneously the swan's mortal enemy and most convinced adorer. Of course, the perfect Giselle, she of calmest purity, is herself a clever woman. The cleverest are easily told, and not by any discourse on politics or Proust Any smartly placed banderillas of wit, not, indeed, by the presence of any positive factor but the absence of one, self-appreciation. The very nature of her attainment presupposes a certain personal absorption. Nonetheless, if one can remark on her face or in her attitude an awareness of the impression she makes, it is as though, attending a banquet, one had the misfortune to glimpse the kitchen. To peddle a realistic chord, and it must be sounded if only out of justice to their cousins of coarser plumage, authentic swans are almost never women nature in the world have at all deprived. God gave them good bones, some lesser personage, a father, a husband, bless them with the best of beauty emollients, a splendid bank account. Being a great beauty and remaining one is, at the altitude flown here, expensive. A fairly accurate estimate on the annual upkeep could be made, but really, why spark a revolution? And if expenditure were all a sizable population of sparrows would swiftly be swans. It may be that the enduring swan glides upon waters of liquefied lucre, but that cannot account for the creature herself. Her talent, like all talent, is composed of unpurchasable substances, for a swan is invariably the result of adherence to some aesthetic system of thought, a code transposed into a self-portrait. What we see is the imaginary portrait precisely projected. This is why certain women, while not truly beautiful, but triumphs over plainness can occasionally provide the swan illusion Their inner vision of themselves is so fixed, decorated with such clever artifice, that we surrender to their claim, even stand convinced of its genuineness. And it is genuine. In a way, the swan monkey is more beguiling than the natural. After all, a creation wrought by human nature is of subtler human interest a finer fascination than one nature alone has evolved a final word the advent of a swan into a room starts stirring in some persons a decided sense of discomfort if one is to believe these swan allergics their hostility does not derive from envy but so they suggest from a shadow of coldness and Unreality the swan casts. Yet isn't it true that an impression of coldness, usually false, accompanies perfection? And might it not be that what the critics actually feel is fear? In the presence of the very beautiful, as in the presence of the immensely intelligent, terror contributes to our overall reaction. And it is as much fright as appreciation, which causes the stabbed by an icicle chill that for a moment murders us when a swan swims into view. What a revelation and premonition almost that entire piece is. Y'all may want to back up just a few minutes and hear all of that over again, What a stellar piece of writing, and again, a snapshot into Truman's perspective and his archaeological exploration of the women figures in his coterie. It is a whole new season, investigators. Capote's coterie, his friends, his enemies, his life of writing and influence, and All the folks that do flock to and around Truman Capote. Our first episode begins next Saturday on Done and Done. I hope you join us then, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for you joining us today for this Setting the Stage episode as we begin this next season. And in the meantime, if you want to add a little bit more to your Done and Done journey, it's a great week to check out patreon.com slash done and done. There you'll find early ad-free episodes that come with our done drops, a little bit of bonus material at the end of episodes. Patreon folks, stay tuned. Our done drop this week has a visit from our friend, Andy Bellotti from Astrology with Andy. He joins us on Patreon to break down the natal chart Of Truman Capote as we begin this season. Your Patreon support will also get you weekly Not Done Yet episodes. This is a deeper investigation into things. We wrapped our Palm Beach Chronicles season this past week with a dig into the Kennedy family's time in Palm Beach and the real hidden history of the coconuts. This week's Not Done Yet we will be getting into Truman Capote and Dominic Dunn again In that earlier time period with a lot of interesting spiderwebs. Friends, thanks again for joining me. I am so excited to start this new season. Thank you for listening, your emails, your kind reviews, telling your friends, and your Patreon support. So grateful that you are here on this journey with us. See you next week or sooner. And until then, y'all know what to do. Stay curious and keep on investigating thanks for listening to the done and done podcast a hemlock creatives production you can email us at done at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram at done podcast for further information about our episodes or sources you can find us online at www.dunanddun.com see you next week friends